Good morning, everyone, wherever you are. In parallel with what Jane said earlier on, I pray that it's not my, my voice you will hear, but God speaking through his word. And his word comes from Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, and in your church Bibles, it's 929. Jonah goes to Nineveh. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the words of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by, giving, by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented, and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How about that? Can you hear me? Splendid. That's good. Thank, thank you very much, Gary. Um, for anyone who doesn't know me, my name is Richard Portlock. I'm a church member here. And my job this morning is to carry on with Jonah, Jonah chapter 3. Uh, and we'll turn to that in a second. But could we just pray briefly first? Almighty God, give us this morning ears to listen minds to understand, and hearts to obey you today and always. Amen. So we've reached the second half of the book of Jonah. It feels quite a long journey so far, doesn't it, to have got only halfway through, but uh, things speed up a little bit from now. Um, we've reached the second half. We know that Jonah was a prophet of the northern kingdom of Israel in the first half of the 8th century B.C., that God commissioned him to preach to the people of Nineveh, a huge city in the hated and militaristic superpower Assyria, near modern-day Mosul in northern Iraq. Jonah, unwilling to engage with Israel's enemy, tried to run away from God, heading west in a sea voyage across the Mediterranean. 
stopped in a storm sent by God which threatened the ship and all on board, Jonah acknowledged that he was the source of the problem, allowing himself to be jettisoned overboard in an act of self-sacrifice. He was rescued from the sea by being swallowed by a great fish provided by God. Inside the fish, he acknowledged his need of the Lord, called on him and worshipped him. God caused the fish to vomit him up onto dry land. And that's where we pick up the story. We're not told, actually, in the text, how long passed before these events and the start of chapter 3. But this is where we join the narrative. And we join with God commanding Jonah again. If you've seen the 1998 film, Sliding Doors which explores the alternative sets of consequences which flow from the fateful action of either getting on a tube train or just missing it, then you'll understand if I describe the start of Jonah chapter 3 as a kind of sliding doors moment. It's as if we've rewound to the beginning. God repeats his call to Jonah to head to Nineveh and preach. Last time, as we know, he refused. This time, Jonah makes the other decision. He obeys God and goes. Nineveh is vast, daunting, about 500 miles distant, and hostile. It would later be made the capital of an empire which even by the standards of the time was renowned for its violence, oppression and cruel conduct of war. Its huge wealth was based on conquest and plunder. It would have taken some courage for Jonah to go. Jonah turns up and he begins to preach. His message is one of judgment, that Nineveh will fall in 40 days. The text doesn't record any call to repentance or any sense of the mercy and grace of God, or that the judgment which was about to fall could yet be averted. We can infer that Jonah was not holding out the hope of mercy when he spoke, that he rather enjoyed preaching God's wrath against the wickedness of Nineveh and hoped to see it perish as threatened. When we come to look at chapter 4 from next week, we will see explicitly that Jonah strongly resented the offer of God's mercy to people like the Ninevites. Despite being a prophet who had a relationship with God, Jonah was very much a work in progress with lots to learn and to experience about God's grace. I'm not going to say much about Jonah and his experience of the Lord this morning because that's best left to chapter 4, but his attitude is something to have in mind while we're looking at chapter 3. The response of the Ninevites to Jonah's preaching is truly remarkable and, frankly, miraculous. 
Jonah is not lynched, as he must have feared. From the top to the bottom of society, the message gets home. The external signs of repentance in verses 6 to 9 are immediate and urgent. Putting on sackcloth, no food or drink to be taken by people or even animals. The king orders everyone to call urgently on God and to give up their evil ways and their violence. We're not told expressly here what that all amounted to, but it's likely to have included a determination to give up greed, corruption, occult practices and sexual immorality, and social injustice. Quite a list. They obviously began to put this into practice because we're told in verse 10 that God noticed that they had turned from evil ways. He had compassion on them, a strong word in the Bible, as we know, with connotations of deep, loving concern for people. And so their impending punishment was averted. Over the centuries, there's been quite a lot of debate about whether the Ninevites' response was a genuine repentance, such as to lead to the start of a relationship with the living God. There's no mention of such a relationship beginning, and it would be wrong to assume that all of them were exercising what we would now think of as saving faith. Moreover, we know that Assyria soon picked up the old ways again fairly soon. Within a generation or two, they had swept south, defeated the northern tribes of Israel, captured Samaria, their capital, and taken the Israelites into captivity, all the while exercising their famed brutality. However, in the time of Jonah, something genuine was certainly going on. We see that God withheld the judgment that was otherwise coming, and we can also infer that there was a genuine change from the words of Jesus recorded in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, contrasting the response of the Ninevites to the message of Jonah with the unbelief of the Jewish people when brought face to face with the Son of God himself. We can read about that later in Luke 11 or Matthew 12. So what then of us? What can we draw from this dramatic narrative that we can learn and apply to ourselves? I'd like to suggest some thoughts which came to me as I was looking at the passage and reading around it. I can, re can recommend, in incidentally, in that connection, Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal Prophet, which much of this series is based around, and Adam has mentioned before. It's, it's good. Firstly, it struck me quite strongly that when the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time, the ask was the same. There is a slight difference in the wording of his command, but it's basically the same. God did not say, in effect, well, Jonah, you've been through the ringer a bit. 
you've probably got post-traumatic stress disorder. I think I might have made a mistake in giving you such a daunting task. Let's give you time to recover. Then we'll think about giving you something a bit scaled back to do. No. The job still needed doing, and Jonah was still the man for the job. The challenge wasn't watered down. Jonah still needs to front up. It's possible for us to hide from something that God wants us to do, isn't it? To duck the challenge because it looks too big, or even because we resent being asked in the first place. When we come to our senses, we may find that the challenge has not gone away. That challenge may be to have a difficult conversation with someone that we've been avoiding. It might be an apology to be offered to someone who is hurting because of us. It could be a willingness to share our experience of faith with a colleague, a neighbor, or a friend who might not seem likely to be very receptive. Or the offering of support to someone in need in a way that costs us in money, in time, in emotional energy. If that's true for any of us, we need to seek God's help and give him a different answer this time. But of course, there's huge encouragement here too. Have we failed in some way like Jonah did? God still wants to use us. Have we turned our back on something he wanted us to give? We can be restored. Is there an attitude we've come to be ashamed of? There is grace available to transform us. All these things were the experiences of the Apostle Peter to whom Jesus ministered gently and deeply following Peter's denial of him and after the resurrection. It happened on the beach, on the shores of Lake Galilee. You can read about it in John chapter 21. So firstly then, the task is still there. Secondly, I think we need to step back and marvel at the love and the grace and the compassion of God and to worship him. Here we see God's character totally opposed to human sin which calls forth judgment because of the damage it does to what God has created but with his longing woven in to see people even those we might want to call the worst people turn from a life lived apart from him and receive his mercy. Sometimes we struggle a bit with the idea that a God of love could be so severe on human sin. But when we do, it's because we fail to see that God could not be called good if he was indifferent to it. If we speak about God's wrath, the Bible word, for his complete rejection of all that's wrong in our lives, 
Contemporary society tends to react either with hostility or with mockery. But in one sense, God's judgment on sin is hardwired into the way the world works. This is a big subject to which we cannot fully do justice in the time available to us this morning. But essentially, the social disintegration which follows from people insisting on going their own way is part of that priced-in consequence. God presides over a good creation, flawed by human sin, where built-in cause and effect processes are expressions of his holy rule. He has created a world in which cruelty, greed, and exploitation have consequences that show up his rejection of evil. So God is not, as some people will have you believe, some sort of petulant pagan deity lashing out arbitrarily. His hatred of the rebellion against him which hurts us and our world and his love for all he has made are not two sides of the same coin even. They're, they're part of a single whole rooted in his goodness and in his love of all that is true and noble and reflective of his character. God wanted to reach out to the Ninevites from the start back in chapter 1 to give them the opportunity to turn to him. That was his loving purpose and he was going to accomplish it. Jonah, despite his failure, remained God's chosen instrument as we are today. What we might ask ourselves is the state of our willingness to be the Lord's instruments in that great purpose. And that question, I think, leads us on to the third main point that strikes me from this passage. God's intent to offer grace and mercy was to those who were, let's face it, amongst the least attractive and apparently deserving bunch of people it would be possible to have found on the face of the entire planet. I believe there is a challenge to all of us to let that sink in. How are we, when we're confronted with people we might call other, those who we think of as beyond the pale because of their attitudes or actions, we know, of course, that the right theological answer is that nobody is beyond God's mercy if they turn to him. But is that always reflected in our attitudes and relationships? Or are there people we have essentially written off because their way of thinking, their behavior, lifestyle, or whatever leads us to think that they're not deserving of God's mercy and grace and could never be receptive to him. If we do find ourselves slipping into that mindset, then I think the story of Jonah really should bring us up short. Because when we think of others as undeserving, 
we're effectively comparing them unfavorably with ourselves, believing that we are deserving. And when that happens, we've lost sight of God's grace and our own need of it. Human distinctions based on supposed gradations of sinfulness mean absolutely nothing to God. The New Testament teaches us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We might need the courage to ask God to show us the true extent of our need for his mercy. In fact, if we want to be generous and gracious towards others, we're going to need that understanding to sink in deeply. Aren't we? But of course, for some of us, that might not be where we're at. The temptation to look down our noses at those over whom we wrongly claim superiority might not be our problem at all. We might instead feel at rock bottom. Like the Ninevites who were frightened of perishing, we might be feeling crushed by our own sense of failure to match God's goodness and by an alienation from God which we find distressing, perhaps even terrifying. If that's where we are, there's the best news. The Bible passage this morning only foreshadows it, but the Gospels written 800 years later and after the death and resurrection of Jesus shout it out. Nowhere is that good news better encapsulated than in the very famous words of Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So it doesn't matter what we've done, how many times we've failed, or where life has tossed us. God loves each one of us. There's nothing we can do to deserve it. But it's still there. When Jesus died, he took upon himself all the consequences of the worst human depravity and degradation we can imagine, and all the sin we've not imagined, and opened a channel for us to receive the mercy and grace with which the one who created us and loves us longs to flood us. Our part is not to try to get ourselves into a position where we think we might deserve God's mercy a bit more, but is rather to accept it with open hands and hearts for the free gift that it is, resolving with his help to change direction radically. There's more to be said about those themes, and I suspect we'll touch on them in chapter 4. But for now, if anything from the story so far leaves you needing to work through 
what your response to God is, perhaps for the first time. Don't loosen your grip on that need, but ask God to make himself clearer to you and perhaps speak to one of the church leaders here or to a Christian friend to talk it through. I'm going to finish now just with a short time of silence just as we can uh, listen to what God might be saying to us uh, and then I'll close with uh, a word of prayer. Loving Father, we thank you for your love for us, for your desire to know us, and that we should know you. You know us completely already. Your longing is that we should become the people that you intend us to be. Help us to understand more each day of the mercy and grace that can be ours as we open ourselves to receive from you and as we commit ourselves to share that mercy and grace with all others. In Jesus' name, amen.